KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. This chain I have on my neck was from my father's pocket watch. I wear this every day. The first thing I get up out of bed, this goes on my neck. This way, I feel he is with me. Welcome to My First Day, telling stories of those who've come to San Diego from elsewhere and now call it home. My name's Andrew Bracken. My first day was uh, 1956, middle of April. That's when I came to San Diego. Rose Schindler's first day in San Diego was not as extraordinary or unique as others, but her journey to it certainly was. Rose is a Holocaust survivor who managed to make it out of the infamous Nazi death camp, Auschwitz-Birkenau, during World War II. This episode contains subject matter that may be upsetting to some listeners. We'll be right back with Rose Schindler's incredible journey. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Rose Schindler came to San Diego after getting a phone call from her husband, Max. They were settled by this time in New York City but a trip west to California brought new opportunity. So he came for 1955 Christmas for three days or four days or whatever. He never went back to New York. He calls me two days later. He says, Rose, we're moving to California, to San Diego. Flew in, and Max met me at the airport. And so, of course, he already had a, a room. I don't, I'm not sure where that room was, but he rented a room. Okay, but within a couple of days, found, uh, rented a house in North Park on Ohio Street. It was exciting, of course. So, because a lot of our survivors, we all started out in New York. Most of us, I should say. And little by little, we were all spreading out all over the country. It was a great, great stuff that was happening every day to us when we first came here. Rose Schindler grew up in a large family in a small village in Eastern Europe. After the Second World War broke out, what was Czechoslovakia became Hungary, an ally of Nazi Germany. She was also Jewish. It was an amazing life over there before the war, really. It was an amazing life under the Czech government. The Jewish people had the same rights like everybody else, okay? And most of the Jewish people were business people. And a lot of the non-Jewish people were farmers. And a lot of them worked for the Jewish people and made a living. The world doesn't realize that, okay? And we were friends. We went to school together, we played together, till everything went to hell. If we needed to know any news, you know how they used to announce it? There was a man with a drum. He would come in the middle of the town, middle of a village, I should say, use a drum and make announcements. When you use those drums, we could all hear it. They were so strong. 
And so they were telling us the news. And actually, the only time I ever remember hearing that is when they announced that all the Jewish people are going to need to pack up. We are going to be sent away. Everybody is entitled to bring one bag. And they also said, if anybody has any valuables to bring with them, with us, and they're going to ha- keep it for us, and when we come back, they're going to give, give it back to us. You know what BS means, right? We needed a bread, so my mother said, go to the bakery and buy a bread. So this was Sunday morning where all this broke out. Of course, the SS soldiers were there a couple of weeks already, so maybe my parents knew what was going on. But me, as a child, I didn't know. I went home, I brought home the bread. My mother's, my mother's telling me what's going on. Uh, and she said to all of us kids, uh, we may be shipped away today or tomorrow. We didn't know exactly which hour we have to report to the school because that was the only two-story building we had. So uh, my father put a few pieces of jewelry together in a little shoe polish box. My two sisters and me, I had two older sisters and an older brother. I had three younger sisters and a younger brother. So my father came to me and my two older sisters. He he got us together. He said, I want you to tell, I want to tell you something. He says, come with me. I put a few pieces of jewelry together in this little shoe polish box. We're going to hide it between the ceiling and the wall. And I want you to know where it is. So when you come back after the war, you'll know where to find it. So we were taken from my village to the next city, which is 20 kilometers away. It took about 10 hours to get there. Let me tell you, I could have walked it faster. Oxen-driven. They would squeeze in probably, I don't know, 30, 40 in each oxen-driven thing. Complete families, from infants to grandparents, okay? They used freight trains to ship us. They squeezed in 70, 80 people in every freight train. You couldn't move around. You know, I, I should also tell you, when we came into Auschwitz, Okay, when we came into the train stopped, the man came on the, on the train to help us with our luggage, right? Okay, and he came to me and he asked me how old I was. I told him I was 14. He says, tell him you're 18. And I had no idea what he was talking about. So, and then he's looking around in the train as we are getting up the train, looking around to see who, if he could see a lot of younger kids that could lie about their age because they brought us here for one purpose, either the gas chamber or slave labor. Anyway, so these three SS soldiers, as we get on the train, uh, is separating people. The men to one line, the women and children to another line, and the women to another line. So it comes to me, he says to me, how old are you? I said, I'm 18. And my older sister, Helen, okay, she was the oldest, she, she didn't know that I was told to lie about my age, because I never told her. She says, oh no, she's only 14. I said, oh no, I am 18. So the SS let me go with my two older sisters. Otherwise, I would have gone with my mother and three sisters and brothers straight into the gas chamber. I never saw them again. My two sisters and I were selected to stay, and my father and my brother, who was like seven, 17 or 18, so here we are, standing in, in line, waiting for further orders. Finally, they marched us into the bathroom, okay, a big room, like probably like from here to the kitchen, 
wide open, and uh, they told us to take our clothes off and put it in a big pile. Then they shaved all our hair, head everywhere else too. And then they told us to pick up a dress from another pile, which was nothing but rags, just a dress and clogs, no underwear, no socks, no shoe, no nothing. And the SS in the corner of the building was taking pictures of us. And after a while, we, they, put, they sent us outside to stay five, always five in a row. So we, we were standing in line, and then there was a man with a dog, and a, and a man had a gun and a dog with him, and there's a huge fire behind the building, the one that we just walked out of. And my sister Judy said to this guy, what's that fire and noise behind the building? Because you can hear children crying, children calling names, and stuff like that. Weird noises. So he said they were burning hair. So my sister said, well, burning hair wouldn't make this kind of noise. Then he said they were burning cripples. She didn't ask any more questions. The next day, when we ended up, finally, after we got into the living quarters, into the barracks, we found out what they did. They didn't even give the people enough gas to kill them all the way. They burned them half alive. Can you believe that? So we knew what happened to my mother and sister and brothers. That's when we found out a lot of things, what was going on over there. Nobody can imagine what we went through. And the world was silent. Nobody tried to help us. Certain things like that you never forget. You can ask me what I had for dinner yesterday. I won't know. But this is in my head like it's a permanent thing in there. So we were in Auschwitz-Birkenau four months. And of course, I was 14 years old. And after we were in this camp there in Auschwitz, Camp C, I was in barrack 26. They had a 1,000 women in every barrack, three rows of bunks. We ended up on the top, top uh, bunk bed. No blankets, nothing. No mattresses, just wood. But we had 10, 12 women in everything. On it. So we kept each other's warm. And you know, we had 12-foot electric fences separating us. 12-foot electric fences. You go out of the barracks and you see all kinds of dead bodies around the fences. The way people committed suicide on the electric fences, if they knew it was electric, because they couldn't handle it anymore. And a lot of them didn't know it was electric. And they would sit, maybe start talking to somebody in the other camp, and automatically you just touch it, you know, an electric fence. Every day, those big, huge wheelbarrows would come to our camp, picking up the dead bodies. We get up in the morning, and uh, they give us black coffee for breakfast in a pot, maybe a six-quart pot. You take a sip. We had no canteens, nothing, no spoons, no forks, nothing. Uh, the, the coffee tasted like black, black soot. I took one sip, and I thought I was going to throw up. So I'm, I'm going outside. I told my sisters, I want to go outside. I want to know where we are, okay? So I'm going outside, and I see all these people walking like zombies. They don't know if they're coming or going. Dead people on the walking areas. Dead people on the, some even holding on on the electric, because once you grab it, sometimes it keeps you there. You know what I mean? It's, it's almost unexplainable how horrible that place looked. And I'm walking, 
and somebody's calling my name. It was my father. My father uh, had a beard, always wore a suit, a hat, well-dressed. This man is in a striped uniform, shaven, no glasses, no beard, no nothing, calling my name. He said, Roisy, Roisy, that was my Jewish name. Don't you recognize me? I'm your father. We hugged and we kissed. The first thing he said, where's your mother? I said, I really don't know, because I really didn't know that morning. I found out later on, the next day, what was going on. I said, I'm here with my two sisters, Helen and Judy. And, uh, and my father said, he's got my brother with him. They were already selected to go to a factory to work. Uh, they were there temporarily, okay, because this was an old woman's camp. And so, and he says to me, whatever you do, stay together because you have a much better chance of surviving. And then he said, stay alive so you can tell the world what they're doing to us. And I had no idea what he was talking about, really. And so, and then he, we made up to meet the next morning again, and my father brought my brother with him. And I brought my two sisters, and we had the same discussion all over again. We said goodbye, and we made up to meet again the next day, but they left. Never saw my father and brother again. He was the most wonderful man. Every day, you know, he had a shop in the middle of the town, a tailor's shop. Every time when he would come home at night, he would always have chocolate bars in his pocket for us kids. We'll be right back. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. I, like two, three weeks later, when they came to, to take 3,000 women to Freudenthal to go to factory, I said to my sisters, we need to get out of this place. We were hoping the war would end, but it wasn't ending. So I told my sisters, you go out front and get selected and keep a place in line for me, and I will steal myself into that place, okay? We had a front, a door in the front and a door in the back of the barrack, okay? In the front, they were uh, selecting women. The back, somebody was guarding the door, one of the leaders in the barrack. So then uh, after standing maybe three, four minutes, I see one of the leaders going out to the back. And I said, my God, well, how am I going to get out with this leader? She doesn't know me, but I have to do something. So I run quickly to the back and... So she says to me, where are you going? You're supposed to go through the front to get selected to, to go to work. I said, my mother just walked out. I want to go with her. She let me out. She wasn't my mother. She let me out. My sisters held a prison line for me. This is how I got out of Auschwitz-Birkenau, okay, by stealing myself into the transport. Of course, uh, they shaved us and gave us decent clothes. And then when we were done, our dress, all our dresses had numbers, okay? Identification numbers. You see, I have it on here. So, but they didn't tattoo us in, in Auschwitz. They tattooed us when we came to the camp in, in, uh, in Freudenthal, okay? Once you get a number, that means you're pretty secure. Our building, we had a two-story building, 
and we were, uh, we were surrounded by electric fences. Would you believe that? Not that anybody would run away. Coming from Auschwitz, we were, we were blessed to be in a, in a nice place like this, a good place where they give you three meals a day, take a shower once a week. You know, it's unbelievable. And there's a factory and then the you fa we, next Yes, door. and the factory was in walking distance, okay? So, and the SS would come and walk us there every morning. So, so we were working, we all, all had different jobs, my two sisters and I. I was working on gas masks. I had to sit on a high chair and pick up a gas mask, look inside it and put it down for 12 hours every day. And after doing that for 10 days or so, I said to the woman that was giving out the lunch, I said, you know, this is hard work, I should get an extra meal a day. She says, sure, you could have an extra meal. This is how I survived. By finding extra food in Auschwitz, too, by finding a piece of bread on the ground. I don't, when we came back, I don't think there were more than 18 or 20 kids that came back after the war to my hometown. And we were 600 Jewish people in our town, okay? I would say 80% of our Jewish people from our town were killed. Once the war ended and the enormous scale of their family's loss became evident, Rose and her two surviving sisters spread out, one to Prague, another back to their hometown. A program for Holocaust survivor children brought her to the United Kingdom, where she would meet another young survivor named Max. And uh, there were maybe 30, 35 boys, hardly any girls, okay? But we were 12 of us left that were sent over there, okay? And the next day they introduced us, okay? And I saw this good-looking young man. And uh, I said, that's for me. Max and Rose Schindler married and first settled in New York City before starting their life in San Diego in the 1950s. But this is like a different world, California, San Diego. None of this was around, okay, in those days. Mission Valley was a dairy. We used to go walk around there and see all the cows and stuff. Even in Allied Gardens, when we lived in Allied Gardens, we used to pick up our milk at the dairy, which was on, on Friars Road. And we joined the Jewish Community Center. That was our family. Joined I mean, the Jewish Community Center on 54th Street, and University Avenue, that's what it was years ago. I fell in love with San Diego, okay? Because, you know, living in New York and Brooklyn, Bensonhurst, you know, uh, here it was all wide open and all these trees and everything, you know, and the parks. It's a, it's a big change compared to a big city. And everybody was so welcoming us. I mean, I would go out on, on the street to walk with my daughter. I had my daughter already. She was a year and a half old. We would all, everybody would stop us and start talking, very friendly. You didn't have that in New York. It's like we're all a big family here, you know what I mean? And they were strangers. Stra complete strangers on the street. You walk, hey, hi, oh, you have a beautiful child, you know, and stuff like that. Eventually, Max, Rose, and their four children settled into a then-new neighborhood in San Diego called Del Cerro. Every house had three, four kids in this neighborhood in this street. It was really nice, safe for the children to play out here. They would play ball in this street every day, okay? So unfortunately, 
out of nine homes, only three of us are left in these homes, all seniors like me. The others all moved away. So, so we've lived here for many years, over 50 years. Though it's been more than 75 years ago now, there's another day that stands out to Rose, the day of her liberation. So finally, there must have been May 6th or 7th. I'm really not sure what day it was, okay? 1945, we're waiting to be picked up and nobody's coming to pick us up. So, and we're not supposed to leave the building. Okay, that's another thing. Nobody's coming to pick us up. And I said to my, my, my sisters and the women, I said, I'm going outside. I was probably the youngest over there. I want to see what's going on. They said, you can't go out. You're not supposed to go out. I said, I'm going out, okay? I go out, and the gate is wide open. All the S's ran away. So, of course, here I am. You know, my head was, I had a little hair already, okay? So, but I was not wearing a uniform either, just regular clothes. And uh, I'm, I go outside the fence. I see planes going over us, and I hear shooting guns coming. We had big fields of corn they were growing behind the building. I hear the guns coming from that area, and I hear the Russian language. Seeing the planes and everything, hearing the planes going over us, I knew this is the end of the war. We are finally liberated. So I, uh, so I figured if I go in front of the, S, the Russians, because I had regular clothes, okay, uh, and already hair on my head, they might think I'm a German. They would probably shoot me. So what I did, I found uh, um, a stick. I tore a piece of my dress off, and I, and I found a stick, and I put that, the dress on that stick. I don't know how I got it on there. I must have made a little hole or something, and went like this in front of the Russians into the fields where they were coming in. The Russians were very good to us. If we didn't have anything, they would take us to town and get whatever we need. Because all the German people in that town, um, Freudenthal, they ran away because they knew if the Russians are coming, there's going to be a lot of shooting. One particular Soviet soldier stands out in Rose's memory from that day. So the Russian comes and he says, do you want to go to town? I said, we could use an extra outfit because all we have is one outfit, okay? So uh, he, took, he came and he took me to town. And, but, you know, my sister says, you better take some other girl. I don't think you should go alone. My two sisters tell me. I said, okay, so I found uh, one of my friends who was there. So he comes to and picks us up, and we're going to town. And I tell you, he was holding my hand, and he was a guy like six feet tall, well-dressed, in nice uniform, and my, uh, myself and my friend. It was like, like I was reborn that day. It was something that went through my body. I don't know what it was, but it was just amazing to be free after what we went through. Rose Schindler and her late husband, Max, wrote a book about their story called Two Who Survived. Staying true to her father's last words to her, She's tirelessly visited schools to share her experiences of the Holocaust so that the world may not forget. My First Day is produced by me, Andrew Bracken, along with help from Melissa Diaz. You can find me at andrewbracken.com. Our email is myfirstdaystories at gmail.com. Our Instagram is at myfirstdaystories. 
Music by Sean Francis Conway. Theme music by Chris Curtis. For KPBS, Emily Jankowski's technical director. Kinsey Moreland's podcast coordinator. Lisa Jane Morissette is operations manager. And John Decker is director of programming. This programming is made possible in part by the KPBS Explorer Content Fund. Thanks so much for listening. See you soon. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.